Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are. And you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one -on -one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. If you like this podcast, it would mean a lot if you could follow, rate, subscribe, review it wherever you're watching or listening to it. With me today, I'm happy to have Brian Finn. Brian is the founder of Findale Capital. Brian, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Doing good. You know, back from the long weekend, excited to start off the week with the podcast. But let me start the podcast with a quick disclaimer. Remind everyone that nothing on this podcast is investing advice. That's always true, but particularly true today. We're going to be discussing a company that has rapidly become a kind of micro cap company. You know, if we were talking 18 months ago, this would have been a 2 billion plus market cap company. Say it's just over 100 million. Uh, Findale Capital sent a letter to the company, which we're going to be talking about. They disclosed that you own about 4% of the company. So people should certainly keep all of those kind of extra added risks and things in mind when they're thinking about this. Remember, not investing in advice, not uh, financial advice. So anyway, the company we're going to talk about is Opportune Financial. The ticker is OPRT. You guys sent a letter to the company about two weeks ago now, which I'll be sure to include in the show notes if people want to review it. And I'll, I'll just turn it over to you. What is Opportune Financial and why did you send a letter to them? Cool. So, I mean, just to, to step back here. So, Opportune was a company that was started uh, back in 2005 by a Stanford school, a Stanford Business School student, actually as a research project. And the idea was to try to find a way to get um, unbanked folks, and these were typically kind of Latin immigrants, um, access to, to, uh, to lending and to credit. And so, you know, this is an alternative to, to call it payday lending. Payday lenders charge 400% interest rates and it's it's you know a practice that's under a lot of political and regulatory backlash yep so this is different than that this is a, basically a personal loan and there's a cap to how much they can charge on the interest there so it's typically most states is about 36 percent most of their loans are you know somewhere in the, the low 30s as far as the interest rate charged and they're short duration so you know less than five years typically typically like one to two years, um, maybe three years. And they pay these loans back in, in uh, sort of like an, an installment scheme. And so what this is really is it's a way for underbanked people uh, to get access to credit and to build a credit score. And it's, you know, it's a really important service in that respect. And Opportune is really the only, the only game in town doing this. Um, so they created this great specialty lending business where... They've got all these retail locations spread throughout the country, you know, in the neighborhoods where these people are. And, uh, you know, they've got access to the most amount of, of data as far as the full uh, performance of these different vintages, because, you know, these aren't loans that remain outstanding forever. They typically get paid off, um, you know, within a couple of years. And they're the only folks at scale targeting this, this customer base. Their main competitor is a company called one main financial and these guys are doing 
you know, similar personal loans, but their their customer base is typically a little bit more assimilated and you know higher up on the the the, the kind of the, the credit spectrum. Um, so they don't really overlap with with Opportune. Um, the guys that are getting Opportune loans are really guys that don't really have a lot of other avenues for for getting these loans. And you know, this is a service that's important from sort of a financial inclusion perspective. So you know, they're targeting a great market. They're the only game in town. Obviously, a number of immigrants in this country has grown a lot, um, and the folks that are are doing these loans, they're doing these loans not just to uh, to get the money for you know whatever emergency it is or, or particular need, but they're doing this to to build up a credit score, and they typically will do about you know three loans, and that kind of gets you to a six sixty FICO score, which is enough to go out and, and get a credit card. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is the renewal rates typically increase with each subsequent loan. And the deeper these guys get into their relationship with Opportune, the more loyal they are. And they'll often kind of later on, um, as they build up their credit score, they'll still do loans with Opportune, even if that doesn't make as much economic sense. So you have a great base business here. Um, Now, what's happened here is is management's kind of come in and and screwed up. that uh so take a step back so the the founder left in i think 2012 yep. uh somewhere in that time frame uh raul vasquez was the ceo who was brought in and he comes from walmart.com where he led those efforts uh he he basically came in and he uh you know he's got sort of a, a techie background uh and he's decided to kind of run this business like it's a fintech company rather than a specialty subprime lender. And what he's done is he's gone out and he's made a bunch of acquisitions and he's layered on all these operating expenditures, um, you know, gone on, hired a bunch of middle management people, really expensive corporate officers in California, um, which is obviously an expensive place to, to hire people. And so by doing all this, he's, he's essentially imploded the business here. Um, you know, what, one of the, the, the big mistakes he made was he bought this company, Digit, for $200 million, and that's been written down, basically. Uh, and they've added all these sort of operating expenditures from there. And if you go through sort of each of these decisions to try to kind of become a more all-encompassing consumer bank, there's really no evidence, and we've talked to sell side analysts who've confirmed this, to show that any of these efforts are really borne any fruit have led to any any new revenue streams or or cost energies and whatnot all they've done is created this gigantic kind of frankenstein cost structure that is obscuring what is an amazing base business here of lending to underbanked folks who uh, need to get access to credit so you know he's done everything possible to basically screw this up and you know the board isn't hasn't been all that attentive to this uh and so you know we wrote this letter to call, uh, you know, to to basically call to question his his conduct as CEO, and you know we've asked that he be removed, and we wrote the letter knowing that the the board slate it's too late to nominate a board slate for for this year, so we wrote the letter to to bring I guess public awareness to his tenure here and his track record as a capital allocator and as a, a manager of this organization. And to begin, you know, a public dialogue about uh, how this company is being run. 
And since we put out the letter, we've had about 25% of the flow, which is a huge amount, reach out to us and essentially voice their, their, their strong support for what, we've, what we put out there. We have not yet begun a campaign of reaching out to other shareholders, although we imagine that you know, most, most, it's just hard to disagree with anything we pointed out because it's, yep. it's just such a blatant, uh, you know, blatant reality. Um, you know, this is a company that when IPO'd in 2019 is down almost 90% versus their, their main competitor, OMF, which is up 50% if you include dividends since then. So there's been a stark difference in performance here. As far as where things are right now, you know, we, we will start reaching out to other shareholders. Uh, what we're going to do is we're waiting. So we were going to do a call with them and uh, that call basically got delayed till, uh, till this coming quarter gets released. And then we plan on seeing, you know, if they take any of our considerations into account and if they don't, then I think we begin a you know a more aggressive campaign of talking to other shareholders. Um, but you know we'll we'll wait and see if they uh, you know what the, what the reaction is here in the in, in the in the near term. Perfect. So let's dive into some of those points because like as you said, like I can't imagine anyone reading this letter and reading the letter you sent and looking at the results and everything and finding like really anything to criticize in it or anything. But I guess you mentioned the board. What? What is the board kind of doing here, right? Because I see a stock that's down, call it 85%. You know, I'll, we can discuss the funding and everything, but I look at the Q4 call, I look at the results, I look at how long it took them to start cutting pause, the results of that acquisition. And I, like, what is the board doing that they're letting management like go on this crazy spree? It seems crazy that they, they're taking so long to make changes here. Yeah, no, it's not clear what the incentive structure is for these these board members um, to just keep this going, and that's why there, there needs to be some pressure applied here. Uh, yep. you've got you've got two board members who've been there for a long time, um, Dave Strom, who comes from Greylock Partners, and Carl Vascarella, who's the lead director. Um, you know, I don't know where those guys are. I mean, you know, Dave has clearly lost a lot of money on this investment, but I mean, my guess, if I had to guess, is that you know this is part of some 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 vintage within his EC fund that has already done pre probably pretty well on, on other investments. And this is yep. just some remaining piece that, um, you know, is floundering, but you know, what, what does he care? Uh, yeah, it's not clear where the, where the, where the board is sitting on all of this. Um, we have yet to obviously have a dialogue with them. Uh, you know, it's not clear how captured they are by, by Raul Vasquez, you know, Raul, from what we can gather, you know, he's, he's sort of well-liked by certain people, in the industry, but he's not, you know, he's one of these guys who's great at sort of getting public PR done. He, he appears to be good at sort of the political games here because he's been able to last in the seat while delivering just completely disastrous results. Um, but he's one of these guys who, you know, you search him, there's like 50 magazine articles talking about what a great executive leader he is, you know, so he's really, really good at PR. Uh, and he gets all these, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion awards and, you know, that, that kind of a thing. Um, but he obviously, the track record speaks for itself, the hugely bloated cost structure, the disastrous acquisitions that he's done and the stock price. Uh, and you've got a lot of shareholders who are, are, are upset. So let's, let's talk about the business and a little bit of upside, and then we can come back to some of the comments you made in the remarks. So I guess the first thing, you know, you said, Hey, this is a pretty good business, you know? 
lending subprime to people without credit scores, like it's not a huge niche, but I think a lot of people would look at that and say, hey, you're lending to people without credit scores, like lending is kind of a commodity business. I do think that that can be a decent business because there are some returns to scale. Again, there aren't going to be a lot of people there. You're competing against like kind of payday loans, but can you just break down the business a little further? Like what makes it such a, a good business to do this? Yeah, look, this is a great business because you've got they've really they've got two things they've got like they've got their tentacles into these different communities they've got all this sort of retail uh, presence so they're they're spread throughout you know the right neighborhoods where these sorts of underbanked people live and work and so they're in the community you know which is a barrier to entry i guess to, to establish that that presence but more importantly it's data they have all sorts of data that no one else has on this particular customer segment and you know, data is, is obviously is key to, to developing algorithms and uh, the like. And so they've, they've developed great algorithms. They have all the data and they've got a huge lead over anyone else in that respect. And when you think about the structure of this business, you're doing these loans at, you know, call it low to mid thirties, the cost of financing is like five, six. So it's a, it's a pretty fat uh, net interest margin. Um, but you know, what matters is, is obviously the cost of customer acquisition and driving that lower, um, which is where they've, which is where they failed. Now, uh, with, um, you know, the niche that they have, they, uh, you know, it would be hard for someone else to kind of come in there quickly because they have the data to show kind of how these loans do over time, which I think, um, you know, if, if, if OMF wanted to come in, it would just take them a while to kind of develop, you know, how a vintage does over time and to know who the good repeat customers are and, and whatnot. Yep. So I think there's a lead there. Um, and the other great thing about this um, is that these loans, you know, it's a book that they can, they can turn over quickly. So they're not stuck with a big loan, loan portfolio that, of loans that are going to last for, for 30 years. These are loans that are short duration loans, so they can, they can change things quickly. Uh, which they did. They did do that last last July when they noticed some uh, deterioration in the in the credit quality of their current portfolio. So they they tightened up the lending standards, and so that will obviously affect uh, loss rates going forward. Um, so they can they can pivot on a dime here, which is which is great. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are, and you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one -on -one and get your calls transcribed free of charge all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. You know, I, I guess, you know, just looking at like, it does seem like lending to subprime people, like you probably should be able to get a little bit of ret return above your cost of capital just because there should be some scale benefits. There should be some data benefits. But you know, I, I guess maybe investors might be biased because just in the small cap space, like 
over the past year or two years, we've seen, you know, OpFi went public through, OpFi had a very similar business model and they went public through a SPAC and that's been a disaster. Thero Group, uh, it, there there were lots of moving parts there and everything, but that's been really poor. You know, each of them, it's not just the base business that kind of deteriorated away and resulted in the, uh, in the poor returns there. Both of them tried to do kind of similar to what Opportune did, they tried to get more into a fintechy lending as a service, whatever you want to call it, thing and catch a tech multiple. And both of them sunk tons of money into that and ended up blowing up. But I guess just like as an investor, you look at it, just seems like all of them blow up. And it seems like how much of it was, hey, when interest rates were going down and the economy was good, and maybe like 2020, everyone was getting PPP and stuff, uh, these loans were paying off better than you expect versus, you know, in 2023, 2024 interest rates rising, maybe a little bit rocky economy, like you start seeing that the lend the write-offs are kind of a little bit higher than maybe these guys had been modeling. And obviously they they changed that a little bit by changing the lending standards in July 2022. But you, you just worry about that, you know, the money out the door and it says, oh, as soon as the economy takes a dip down, you just see write-offs left and right. Yeah. And there's a couple ways to think about this. Um, you know, for one, when you think about you think about who they're lending to. These are folks that are actually their 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 jobs are in demand. They're probably not getting uh, laid off. You know, if you look at kind of what's what's happened with unemployment here, it's the white collar workers that are are seeing layoffs. Whereas, I mean, there's a great Wall Street Journal headline talking about how it's really hard to find a truck driver um, to pay ninety thousand dollars a year, but really hard, really easy to find an MBA that you could pay sixty thousand dollars a year. <laughs> so you're not going to see their unemployment rate, or at least right now, uh, isn't isn't spiking. You're still seeing strong strong growth and, and demand for these types of jobs. Um, you know, inflation obviously uh, caused some issues with their, 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 their losses, which, which went up from call it like seven percentage to, to 10%. Um, but they're forecasting at least right now to see those loss rates come back down as they've changed out the, the, the credit quality since July of, of last year. And so most of the loan portfolio you know, by the second half of this year will be sort of the post post July of last year lending standards. Uh, so they've tightened up the credit quality. I think they're the the, the folks they lend to um, are in a better position from an employment perspective. And inflation, the thing that kind of throws all these variables um, out out the window, uh, has at least come down a little bit. Um, inflation obviously hits poorer people more than it hits wealthier people, but oil prices are you know, in a more stable uh, trading range than where they were, uh, you know, last year around this time. Uh, and some of the other metrics have, have come down as well. So I definitely, I mean, the macro is something to, to, to consider and worry about here. But the reality is these guys have such a fat margin. What screwed them up is is not the the quality of the loan portfolio. It's how this guy has operated the business. I mean, to give you some stats here, Opportune back in 2016, uh, if you look at their OPEX per number of loans, so roughly kind of the cost of, of customer acquisition, it was in like the 300 to $400 range, you know, like three, 350 ish. Today, it's $1,000. Now, where's all that OPEX going? It's not going to, uh, it's not additive to, to their, their loss rates or it's not additive to, their lending algorithm or anything like that, it's going to support this massive corporate bloat. They've raised the headcount of their their 
their corporate officers by 70% since 2019. You know, these are all guys making 300, 400, $500,000 a year who are, you know, just a cost center. They're not adding, uh, they're not adding the revenue creating employees who are the folks in the retail centers, uh, creating the loans or in the call centers, helping service these loans. That's not where this guy's added employees. He's added employees at the corporate headquarters, you know, and, and you see it, uh, you can just look at their website. They've got 27 vice presidents, essentially 27 executives listed on there. And a lot of them have overlapping titles. They literally have like three or four people that are head of global HR, uh, you know, four risk officers. They have all these different people that are essentially doing the same job. And these are folks making mid to high six figures. So the issue with opportune is really not, I mean, in credit environment matters and could become a, a, a problem, but that it looks like they've managed that fine and the loan portfolio does turn over quickly. So that's, that's a risk that I think is more manageable here versus other specialty lenders. The issue really is just how this guy's operated the business, how many costs he's layered on and how, you know, this is really it's like Teldar paper 2.0. If you ever watched the movie wall street, uh, when Gordon Gecko gets up and talks about Teldar Paper, how they have, you know, all these vice presidents all doing the same thing, you know, that's what this is. This is an organization that got massively bloated because you had a CEO who was pursuing all these sort of imperialistic uh, fintech dreams, wasting a ton of money in acquisitions, wasting a ton of money on personnel, and it's caught up to them. They've got a market cap of 150 million now, so the company's the stock's been destroyed. But he still has not gotten the message. He still hasn't pivoted. They've made these sort of token pivots on the cost side, but nothing that really constitutes the, the gravity of the, the situation here. This letter is a wake-up call to him that he has to pivot and he has to change. Yeah. Um, if you look at their competitor, you know, one main, one main's done fine over the last since uh, since 2019. If you comp them on a you know stock performance basis, one main has not added a bunch of employees. They've actually their, their employee headcount's gone down from 10,000 to 9,000. Their cost uh, per loan has stayed flat. So they're getting operating leverage every year as they grow the business. So one main, you know, it's managed, Apollo's on the board, it's managed, you know, soundly. Uh, these guys have been managed disastrously and that's why they are where they are. And it really falls on, at the end of the day, it falls on the CEO, it falls on Raul Vasquez who is great at, you know, getting accolades and managing his PR and probably managing the internal politics of this company, but it's been a complete and utter disaster for shareholders. And the shareholders are waking up to this and they're upset and they, they need to see either him be removed or they need to see a massive cost initiative here to address these issues. If I could just add some things on there, like, look, this is coming. I could not believe it when I, I was looking at, uh, you know, just the 10K and everything, flipping through it, making sure I was prepped for this podcast. They capitalized $50 million of software last year. This is a $120, $150 million market cap company that is, you know, they're they're a lender and they capitalized $50 million of, of market cap, like of software expense. It seems pretty clear to me. And the other thing I'd add is you mentioned OneMain as a competitor several times. Go look at OneMain's earnings releases, you know, they they treat themselves like a finance company. They mention, hey, here's our tangible book value. Here's our, re- here's our return on equity. Here's our charge of free shares. Tangible book value and book value is really the one I'm thinking of. Whereas go look at how Opportunity talks about themselves. They never talk about book value. They never talk about, they, they do give some return metrics, but they never talk about book value. And it's like, look, 
these guys, 50 million of software expenses, what they focused on, uh, what they're putting out in their earnings release. It's pretty clear that they see themselves as a growthy tech company and the results are in, right? They wrote down the acquisition. Uh, they're trading way, way below book value. They're writing everything off. Like they need to re readjust and remanage themselves, like what their core business is, like where their earnings are. Uh, and that is as a kind of subprime lender, to put it bluntly. Uh, and anything you want to add on that? No, I totally agree. I mean, they're trading at a fraction of their book value here, whereas their comps trade above book value. So that kind of says it all. I mean, yeah. uh, Let, you know. let's build off book value and let's just quickly talk, you know, not pieing this guy upside, but how do you look at value in the company? Because my, my first takes were, hey, let's look at tangible book value. As we discussed, they're trading below that. I'll let you calculate that or I can throw <laughs> some numbers out. Or the other way to look at this and I, I don't look at tons of sell side research, but this is a pretty well covered company. You can go find it. Most sell side says, hey, here's 2024 earnings, slap probably like a five times multiple on it, which makes sense for a what should be a low growthy subprime business, in in my opinion. But both of those would get to a number higher. You mentioned something similar in your letter. So I'll just kind of toss it over to you. How do you think about valuing this company if they do what's right here? Look, I think you can go through their their 10ks and sort of see where they've added cost over the last couple of years and it's you know it's been an air you know sort of these 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 cost centers that aren't increasing revenue to any discernible degree that, that we can see um we think they could easily take out an additional you know 150 million in opex here if you there's different obviously there's different ways to slice and dice uh you know their 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 overhead here you could look at an opex per per loan originated opex per um total originations opex uh you know per total total loan value there's different ways to do it it's it's every single metric it's clearly kind of gotten out of whack if they were to go back to their operating expenditures in you know three or four years ago as a percentage of any one of those metrics that again is you know 150 to, to 200 million dollars less opex in 2024 20, than what they're kind of currently projected to do but look, this is a company with, you know, someone that order of 35 million shares outstanding. You go, you cut one expensive uh, middle management guy, that's called a million dollars. That's, uh, or, you know, that's three cents a share, something to that effect. So, you know, the simplest thing they can do here is to go out and cut overhead and stop these different fintech initiatives uh, if they got back to any of the opex ratios from from twenty, you know, even close to twenty, what they were doing in twenty nineteen, uh, you know, we have them doing more than three dollars a share in earnings, like three four dollars a share in earnings in twenty twenty four, even with kind of an elevated loss ratio and uh, and whatnot. So really, we just there's just tons of fat to cut here. They just he just hasn't been willing to cut it because you know whatever he's just, maybe he's just full of pride or hubris and. The board isn't really forcing his hand. Uh, in the meantime, he's paying his management team something on the order of like almost thirty percent of the market cap. If you look at their their comp, um, whereas the competitors are at like one percent. So, you know, his hand needs to be forced. I think that there's enough angry shareholders out there that 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 agree with this. And you know, if you model it out, you can easily get to three four dollars a share in earnings next year. And that, you know, sure, five, five times that it's probably reasonable. In the long run, though, if you got a management team in place here that really focused on cost of acquisition 
you know, per, per, per loan and really got down to the, the numbers that they were at, you know, five, six years ago, then I think, you know, you'd look at a sort of the, the sky's the limit here. You know, this, this, this should be a multi-billion dollar company because they're in a great market. It's an important service that they're providing and they have, they have an amazing sort of data advantage over everyone else having been in this, this sector for longer and serviced, you know, way more loans to this particular customer segment than any other competitor. So, you know, if they had the right sort of specialty lending focused folks in charge versus someone who thinks they're a fintech yeah. CEO, One. they could they could get there. I have no disagreement there. One other worry, worry opportunity I have, like go anybody who's interested, go look at the Opportune website versus the one main financial website. Like Opportune is always pushing you towards the Opportune app and talking about this tech focus that we're talking about. Where if you go to the one main website, they don't talk about app, the app. It's just hey, do you want a loan? And like when you're dealing with subprime lenders, like these are the un, generally people who are unbanked. I keep saying subprime, but it's actually unbanked here is what you're really dealing with. Like an app might not make as much sense. Like, yeah, you get a recurring customer and it's on their phone and stuff, but if they're unbanked, they don't have a way to really get anything going through an app, right? Like right. you really do need to be dealing with them. It, it sounds silly, but like, I, I remember when I was talking to Alpha, they're like, yeah, it's silly, but our best way of getting customers is actually in the mail. It's not going to be digital. It's not going to be over Instagram. Like it's in the mail. It's people going into branches. And it just seems to me pretty clear that Opfy is focused on something that you know, if they were dealing with high net worth individuals who they were looking to sell uh, IRA products to, or, you know, get trading commissions from, yeah, it would be great for that, but they're not, they're dealing with much lower income people. They need to just focus on mail cutting costs. Like the apps really not, yeah, it might be nice in the long run, but it's not what you want to be kind of leading off with. It, it Just another example of uh, corporate strategy gone wrong to me. No, that's, that's a great point. And if you look at opportunity, a lot of people do pay back their uh, their loans in the retail stores. They literally line up and give or giving cash. Uh, so if that's your customer base, you know some thirty five year old immigrant with two kids who works, you know, sixty hours a week in kind of a, a some sort of blue collar type of job, and they're coming into the 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 retail branch and paying back the loan with cash. Yep. The fact that you're going to turn this person into some sort of millennial, you know, app person, like doing, you know, these people are very, very far away from becoming kind of Robin Hood day traders. You know, they're, they're Exa folks that are- Robin Hood is exactly what I was thinking when I mentioned the, the app. And yeah, exactly. So let me, let me just quickly, so book value, right? Book value is, if you look at December 31st, 2022, about 550 million of that, about 140 million is capitalized software, which I think both of us would probably just write off. So call it 400 million of 400, 410 million of tangible book. There's 33 million shares outstanding. They'll be going up a little bit. Uh, they'll be going up a little bit after the warrants and stuff. And we might talk about finance in a second, but that's over $10 per share of tangible book. It's trading today for less than $4 per share. I, th I think people can see like the hard asset value. I guess the one thing to think about there would be, Hey, we already wrote off all the intangibles, so there, there's nothing to worry about there. But what about the fair value of the loans here, right? This is not a held to maturity Silicon Valley Bank situation, but they do have to fair value their loans. And I think people might look at the the recent financing that we might discuss in a second. Everything say, hey, you know, economy slowing down. They've had to re they had some issues with the loan portfolio. Or, hey, can I really trust that there's a solid? 
$10 per share intangible book here. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's fair to, to have concerns around uh, the loan performance going forward, get, especially if the macro environment changes more from here. Um, I guess I would think that like the loss, the losses that you saw last year, you know, I mean, they went up from sort of six, 7% to, to, to over 10. Uh, we're in an environment where inflation was spiking. So as inflation comes down here, um, while it's still maybe at elevated levels, you know, I guess the question is, how does this, how do, how do these, these loan cohorts do? Um, and that, you know, and speaking to some of the sell side analysts, they had, they had questions around that. Um, so I don't, you know, it's kind of all the more reason for them to, to focus on, on cutting costs and controlling the expenses they can, can, can control here. Cause if the, if the credit environment takes a much more dramatically worse turn, then, you know, perhaps the loan performance that they thought they were going to have, uh, as far as the loss ratios just gets, gets, gets worse. But for now they're forecasting a, a decline in losses and, uh, sort of more normalization of their, their, their loss ratios. The other thing I worry about, so you don't have to follow along, but page 51 of their 10K has how they kind of fair value their loans. And they've got, hey, like they've got the discount rate at 11.5% of their loans. And this will bleed nicely into the refinancing and everything they just did. But they just refied their credit agreement to LIBOR plus 9%. And they had to do, uh, and they had to do issue about 10% of the company in penny warrants to get this thing done. And I look at that refinance and say, hey, their cost of capital seems a heck of a lot higher than 11.5% right now. Like that seems like a pretty distressed financing. I worry, hey, you know, it, it, it's either signaling distressed financing or cost. I'm not sure, but 11.5%, it's actually 11.48%, but it, it seems a little too low versus kind of what I'm seeing in their financing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Um, the, 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 their cost of financing is going to, I mean, essentially the, the bottom line, you're going to get more dilution here as a shareholder, unless they get, get, uh, you know, get religion on, 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 on cost here. You Which know, is all the more the, reason to cut the cost that's the, aggressively right now and get the, so that you don't have to do this refinancing so that the cash flow pours in and you can kind of finance yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's the cheapest form of capital is to just cut your cost. Uh, Perfect. So, so let's talk. Are, yeah, uh, uh, the, the recent refinance is. I, I just kind of want to harp on the Q4 call because I thought I think for somebody sending a letter, if you're a shareholder who's interested or you're just interested in this situation, I'd go listen to Q4 call. And if you listen to it, I mean, this is my words, not yours, but I'd kind of be like, hey, if somebody didn't send a letter to the company, I would wonder what the heck is going on. You know, they talk about the banking acquisition they did in late 2021, where they're saying, hey, we're just starting to see the synergies come in here after we basically wrote off all the goodwill. You know, I don't believe there'll ever be synergies. Uh, they talk about the refinancing they did, which they did alongside earnings. They kind of buried it in the 8K. And, you know, they have analysts coming on and be like, hey, I need you to explain this recent refinancing. It comes with some warrants. I need to get some details on the warrants until basically, you know, they get in, management gets asked enough questions and they finally say, hey, guys, these are penny warrants. You know, they're, they're free to exercise. We just gave away 10% of the company to get this done. Like, you know, if I was listening to this, I would have been just like terribly, terribly concerned as a shareholder. So I don't let you comment on I kind of rambled on that a little bit, but I want to let you comment on anything in the Q4 results. You know, they talk about the July restructuring where they said, hey, we we tightened the credit box there. 
guess what? They probably should have done it a lot earlier. They they did say they're cutting some costs, but I don't think it's enough. So just anything that happened there, I kind of wanted to give you a chance to address. Yeah, no, I think I think the point is you need to see a big pivot here. Um, you know, I give them some credit for tightening the credits the credit box. You know, in July, but to your point, they should have done that earlier. And if you look at OMF, like OMF wasn't as aggressive with their lending growth uh, during the last two years, and so they haven't had to pivot as strong as as much as as opportunities. I mean, opportunities over and over again is trying to kind of grow unnecessarily in ways that aren't accretive for shareholders. And just you know, is just constantly getting whacked for for doing so. Um, but yeah, on the, on the cost side, you know, they've, they've made these sort of token gestures to to decrease costs by um, I remember the amount, but I had it I had it in my letter. But you know, not nearly what they could do and what they should do. Uh, they, they did fifty million, and I think in your letter, if I remember from, I, I think you called for over one hundred fifty million, but uh, it, it could be more than that. Yeah, let me just pull up the letter. Yeah, because um, yeah, those, they're at five fifty, and you said right. bring it back to three eighty one, so about one fifty. Yeah. Um. So yeah, this is a management team that still thinks that they've got all these avenues for growth in the fintech space. It's still saying, "Hey, wait and see." They talk about the digit acquisition in generalities. They don't point out to anything specific um, about what what what's happened there, any revenue synergies or cost synergies. So they're talking about these things kind of in generalities and saying, hey, you should just wait and, you know, we're going to grow a ton in the future via these different initiatives. But to your point, you know, none of these make sense for, none of these seem synergistic to their base business here and the type of customers that they have. You know, these are, you know, I guess Silicon Valley people thinking that they understand a community that they they apparently don't seem to understand uh, because they're providing them with products that this community doesn't want or need. Rather than focusing on the on the product that they're that they're good at and have grown a real base business around, and yeah. if they go back to focusing on that product and cutting out some of these costs here, they've just they've got a huge, you know, a huge advantage there from from a retail location perspective, from loan data, um, and just a lot of customers that are already recurring. Uh, so you could just cut all those costs and and have a great base business here that spits off. A lot of earnings, even in a more distressed credit environment, um, where where loss you know loss rates go up to you know stay at an elevated level. They you know just on the products. I, I just had their 10k. It was open behind this, and I just saw underneath it. They they mentioned the digit deal, and they talk about hey you know we're selling our customers low cost ETFs and tax advantaged IRAs. It's, hey, like your core business is lending to the unbanked, like. You know, it's the alternative to them getting payday loans to cover short-term needs. Like these guys do not want tax advantage. I mean, everybody wants tax advantage IRAs and ET low-cost ETFs, but that is not what they're looking for. They're coming to you to cover a life emergency, to cover something for short-term cap. Like it's just crazy that you would think there's synergies between between those two products. It's just absolutely wild. So let's let's talk next steps. You sent the letter a couple of weeks ago. You mentioned that the company and you are probably going to talk on the heels of their Q1 earnings, which will be out in the next few weeks. Uh, it's two, you know, nomination windows closed. There's not going to be a proxy fight here. The company is only 120 million, so proxy fights at that level are a little crazy. But let, we need to stop. I need to stop mentioning proxy fight actually. But what's kind of the next steps here, right? You'll talk to them in a few weeks. Like, what are you looking for? What are the tangible next steps that people who might be interested in this or following along should kind of be looking for here? Yeah, I mean, like, look, let's. Uh, was it Bessemer Capital wrote wrote Meta a letter saying, "Hey, look, you guys got to stop 
pivoting to to this metaverse thing and and cut costs. And Zuckerberg, who's a, you know obviously a great entrepreneur who actually built you know a multi billion dollar business, to his credit, you know he got the letter and he pivoted. They started cutting costs and and doing some of the things that that Bessemer asked. Um, you know, Raul's not Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, I hope that he has the humility to do what Zuckerberg did and to recognize here that if he doesn't do it, you know, shareholders in the end will will have their voices heard and he won't have a job. Uh, he either won't have a job because he'll get fired or he won't have a job because the company will, will you know, will, will, won't be a going concern. So he will lose his job no matter what if he continues to do what he's doing. Um, hopefully he has the humility to realize he's got to pivot here and announce some sort of strategic cost review and go out there and say, hey, look, we can take out 150 million or pick your number in operating expenditures um, and go out and make those make those cuts. Uh, you know, I think that's the only thing that he can do in the next two months without the pressure from myself and from other shareholders just ratcheting up. I mean, it's not going to, the pressure isn't going to stop um, after the letter. Uh, now to your point, you know, the, the board nomination deadline has passed. So there's nothing to do for now in that respect, but uh, that doesn't mean that down the line, there won't be other, you know, moves in that respect that can be made. Um, but I imagine that, you know, other shareholders can write letters this will just turn into more of a public relations nightmare for him and for his board. Uh, because it's like the, 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 the first shot was fired and now more people are going to look to, to shoot their shot um, at him and at his, his managing style and at his, his approach to capital allocation. So, you know, he's under, he's got to, he's got to do something here. I think if he just has another quarter and, you know, talks about his different FinTech initiatives it's just going to be a, a much broader mutiny. I'm not original or brilliant for pointing any of this out. I was just the first one to do it. And there's a lot of other people who feel exactly the same way who will, uh, I think, come forward um, and write letters and, uh, you know, start a start a campaign here to, to pressure these guys to pivot. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are, and you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one -on -one and get your calls transcribed free of charge all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. You know, I think people a lot of time get, get hung up on, hey, is this guy like, uh, is he always going activist on something? Is he a first time activist that like, I, I think you can speak to your history with your history or lack thereof with activism. But to me, it's just like, hey, does what the person saying in this letter make sense? It's like, here's a guy who owns 4% of the company, like everything he's saying makes sense. The management team, you know, they've, again, share price down 85, 90% over the past 18 months. It's They just had to issue penny warrants for 10% of the company to get financing done at 
you know, 10% plus all in interest rates, excluding the penny warrants. Like they've run this company to the ground. And to me, it seems like, as you said, the 50 million cost sets, cost cuts are a nice first step, but the, it's so clear to me, you cannot invest 50 million into, you know, capitalizing software anymore. You, it, the, It's been tried. It blew up. The company is on the brink. They need to get back to basics. And that involves cutting all of these finance costs, focusing on the core business, which can be a good one and running this thing for cash. And, you know, probably the end game here is do all that. And this is not a company. I think this is one of the reasons some of these kind of unbanked companies get in trouble. It's not really a company that should be public, right? It should be run for cash without tons of growth because the scariest thing in finance is a fast going financial. Like you're not going to take over the world. They should probably just be run for cash by a small private equity shop. It shouldn't be public. They shouldn't have the added cost burden of a public company. Seems pretty clear to me. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a company that should be owned by private equity. That's probably the bottom line. Yep. Um, and maybe that's maybe that's where all this ends up kind of going. Uh, but yeah, in private hands, this company could be run, you know, way more effectively um, on all sorts of levels. I mean, um, take out, again, 125 million, 150 million market cap company probably costs 3 million to be public these days. So take that out. That's a pretty nice synergy from the get go. Uh, anything else you wanted to talk about on, I think we covered just about everything. Uh, in your letter, I think we covered everything in my question notes. Uh, anything else we should be talking about or people should be thinking about? No, I mean, I think, you know, the, the synopsis here is that this is a great business and it would be a shame if it was run into the ground by this corporate, by this, by this leadership team and by, by Rule Vasquez. Um, I hope, I think he, he'll, he'll pivot if he's, you know, got a head on his shoulders and isn't, isn't totally uh, full of pride and ego. Um, you know, and if he does, that's, you know, that, that really will, will change things from, from our perspective. Um, but that remains to be seen over the next, the next month or so, uh, you know, so we'll probably know a lot more after this quarter. And that's, that's where we'll probably make our, our next decision about how to, how to engage. Perfect. Perfect. Well, look, I'm going to include a link to the letter that you guys sent. Again, anybody who's interested in the situation can go read that letter, get a little bit more familiar with the company. Brian's contact info is also at the bottom of that letter. So anybody who's interested in reaching out, you know, if you're a shareholder and you kind of want to swap thoughts or potential shareholder and you want to swap thoughts, you can find his contact info there and uh, kind of reach out to him from that. But Brian, thanks so much for coming on. And I know that we've got one other portfolio company in common that uh, we didn't talk about today, Liquidia. But because of that, I'll say thanks for coming on and I'm looking forward to having you on again in the future. All right. Take care, man. Bye. Later, Brian. A quick disclaimer, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Guests or the hosts may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned during this podcast. Please do your own work and consult a financial advisor. Thanks.